is an, a motto that we developed for use in HR. And it actually used to be the reverse. It used to be mission first, people always. And then when I stepped up into the role, um, we sort of led the charge to say, no, we should go to the people first. And here's why. You sort of don't have mission without people. So, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, that gets lost, especially when you see, you know, pictures of all these wonderful things floating around in space and helicopters on Mars. And, and, and it's easy to forget that that all came from the people who made it happen. That was NASA Chief Human Capital Officer, Jane Data. And in this episode, Jane and I discuss her career and work leading the people team at one of the most recognized brands on the planet. We discuss how they approach recruiting in a high volume environment, how they were somewhat insulated by the great resignation and the importance of representation in the Artemis three mission and so much more. And we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. It's time to let go of the past perceptions of HR. Amplify is a new model of agency design from the ground up to support business and people leaders navigate the new world of work. We do that through two platforms. Our HR executive search practice is a new model of agency that moves away from traditional transactional search models with our flat fee pricing structure and advisory on the front and back end to help our clients attract and retain transformational people leaders. Our Amplify Academy is a unique platform to support continuous learning and build readiness, capability, and global networks for today's HR practitioners and leaders through the AI Learning Lab, peer learning cohort programs, community, and a range of resources to support their growth. You can learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, on to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Schmidt, and today, today's a real treat. I'm really excited to be sitting down with Jane Data. Jane is the Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA, and it's an agency you may have heard of. You may have followed some of the work that they have done. I certainly have as a uh, boy growing up in South Florida watching shuttles take off uh, on a regular basis, and so I have so many questions and I want to dig right in. Uh, Jane, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Uh, I'd love to have you open with an introduction for the audience. Thanks, Lars. It's a great pleasure to be here. So I am the Chico of NASA. That's what we call ourselves. That's the equivalent of the CHRO in industry. I've been with NASA since early 2000s, and I stepped into this role in January of 2020, which, as you all will recall, was right before the pandemic hit. So it's been an interesting experience being in this role at this agency during these few years. You know, I, I have so much empathy for people who moved into those roles at that time yes. uh, in the world and kind of what you've experienced. So that 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 might open up a whole nother series of, of questions that, uh, you know, we may have to cover. But let, let's go back to the beginning, because I know that you were, uh, if I recall correctly, you were consulting, you know, uh, within the agency before you kind of moved in-house, but you've been working in HR the majority of your career. What? Let's go back to the beginning. Like, what originally drew you to the field? Well, when I was in business school, um, I approached it knowing that I was open for a career change, and I had lots of different options, different, you know, roads I could have gone down post-business school. 
And I landed pretty quickly on HR. And I think the reason I did was that it was like this nice combination of being analytical and creative and very people-focused. And all my experience to that point had been in very people-focused roles and organizations. And so I knew that's what I needed. And so that's what I pursued. And it's interesting. I mean, you've seen so much evolution in the field over that time. Um, And, you know, it's interesting. I think I've been, you know, working in a space for about 25 years now. And and even just seeing the, the evolution over that period of time, but in particular the last couple of years, so much has changed and so much has shifted. And again, you know, you're kind of overseeing the human capital strategy for a, a massive agency, again, moving into that role, as you mentioned, right in the early days of the pandemic. You know, before getting into the nature of kind of your work and projects at NASA, let's level set a bit. Because I imagine, I mean, NASA is probably one of the most recognizable brands, companies, you know, brand, I would say, from a marketing perspective, but on the planet, right? Uh, there are very few people who don't have any idea of what NASA is. But I imagine many people outside of some of your missions don't necessarily know what NASA is like, you know, behind the scenes. So could you kind of walk us through um, approximate, you know, number of employees, uh, locations, and then within your kind of human capital team specifically, how are you structured to support that group? So NASA consists of what I would call mission areas. There are four technical mission areas. So there's human spaceflight, so Artemis, shuttle, etc. There is science, so think DART, that was just recently uh, accomplished, the DART mission, uh, and the rovers, and the James Webb Space Telescope, etc. We also have space technology, and we have aeronautics. So, you know, things like electric airplanes and the airspace. So we cover a lot of different aspects of this whole industry area. And, you know, we do that through what the field center model. So we have 10 field centers dotted across the country. You've heard of many of them, I'm sure. You know, you have Johnson Space Center in Houston and Kennedy in Florida, just as examples, and there are others. Um, and what we do is we, we have about 18,000 civil servants distributed across the field centers and, and the headquarters in the Washington, D.C. area. And we essentially matrix that mission work to the workforce that is organized in those field centers. So that's kind of the basics. It's also important to note, you know, the civil service workforce is only one component and not the largest one of what we consider to be our overall workforce. We've got contractors, prime contractors, support service contractors, like most government agencies do. We also have uh, partners in industry. Uh, We also have international partners. And so there are a lot of, you could go broad and say that our workforce is a whole bunch of things. And civil service, though, is kind of at the core of it. And for my work, it is largely about the civil service population as the sort of anchor for the the NASA workforce. Um, From an HR perspective, it used to be that there were you know, HR offices in each field center. And there still are. However, they were decentralized. And uh, about five years ago, all the business functions at NASA were consolidated, and including HR. So that means that I now have a staff of, well, 500 
that's a mix of civil servants and contractors that are that are spread out to do the work of human capital at NASA. So it's allowed us to focus on efficiencies and, you know, really improving and modernizing how we do our business. And it's interesting to get a sense of like how the different, um, you know, mission uh, teams are structured and kind of what sits where, because you, you hear of a mission like DART, right? That was the most recent uh, high-profile mission, which is just mind-boggling when you think of the complexity of hitting an asteroid, yes. you know, millions <laughs> and millions of miles away in a multi-year effort. But we'll, I want to come back actually to that piece where it talked about planning for some of the projects uh, that you have to design the, that are of that nature. But um, but yeah, it's interesting to get a sense of like how, how you're structured to support that. Um, and with the your mission within HR of kind of people-first mission always, what does that mean? How does that kind of inform how you think about designing the people strategy? This is an, a motto that we developed for use in HR. And it actually used to be the reverse. It used to be mission first, people always. And then when I stepped up into the role, um, we sort of led the charge to say, no, we should go to the people first. And here's why. You sort of don't have mission without people. So, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, that gets lost, especially when you see, you know, pictures of all these wonderful things floating around in space and helicopters on Mars. And, and, and it's easy to forget that that all came from the people who made it happen. Moreover, and I maybe as importantly, I think, um, it's about the curiosity and creativity of humans that has enabled or driven us to the point where we want to actually go do these things, <laughs> explore the origins of the universe, right? That's a very human, it's a very human desire. And so in human capital with the, the employee driven programs, knowing that the workforce is first, that we're really thinking of what workforce we need and how to make sure that they are engaged and have what they need to bring their full selves to work. It just makes sense to have the motto that way around. I'll also say um, we did that knowing that at NASA, you know, we really are pretty people focused, you know, top down um, and, and across. So what that means is we were, we were adopting a motto that actually could resonate across the agency inside, but also outside of HR. I'm curious, did you get any, any resistance, right? When you, when you made that shift, because everything you've described makes sense, but I'm also guessing if there was kind of a longly, uh, a well-established kind of motto, um, you know, did, did shifting the order of that ruffle any feathers? Actually didn't. Um, in fact, I got in, in the opposite. I got like, yeah. you know, thank you. <laughs> you know, I like that. It works. <laughs> and so I will say we have never looked back. Since, yeah. we, since we changed that order. So. Well, you know, one of the things that just kind of fascinates me about, um, you know, a role like yours in an environment like NASA is, you know, for most CPOs, CHROs, heads of human capital, whatever the title might be, you know, you're, you're working uh, in an organizational strategic business plan. You usually have, uh, you know, two to three year roadmap for the business. You're develop, developing a people strategy that helps the business achieve those goals over those kind of usual periods of time. But 
you're working in a different environment. You're working uh, in supporting missions that have a you know three to five to ten or more uh, year kind of lifespan, and especially in the backdrop under which you're operating today, where there's so much volatility, uh, you know, in 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 the world and how we think about working. And I mean, obviously, when you designed the the talent strategy for the Dart mission, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that was probably pre-pandemic. And then lots of things changed, of course, during the pandemic that, that you have to adapt to, even though you're kind of uh, years into a multi-year strategy. How do you do that? Like, how, how do you think about designing, you know, talent strategies and people strategies for these multi-year kind of long tail missions? Well, let me just say, you know, it isn't easy and we're not perfect. However, this is how I look at it. We, th- these long-term missions require us to have some amount of stability in our workforce. And in fact, Title V, the civil service framework that we all operate in, kind of encourages that sort of um, consistency, right? Um, and that has benefited us. However, um, it's also important for us to have some agility to accommodate changes that may not have been foreseen. And so one of the way there are a couple of ways that we that we do that. One is there is quite a bit of interoperability. So, you know, we have engineers, but engineers might have worked on a specific program for a while, but actually are very transferable over to other types of work. Not everybody is interoperable with everything, so I don't mean to imply that, but I think we have a sense of, you know, we have what I would call skilled athletes, if you will, that you can move around to do different things within a, within reasonable boundaries. And so, and that has been our way of addressing change all along. I think what we're looking at now, though, as we look in outside of NASA and into the ecosystem where we, where we play is that there is perhaps, whilst we still have, you know, these very decadal missions, right, both in, in many of our mission areas, including in human spaceflight, we also have um, a growing industry around us. It's maturing in certain ways, especially now that we are successful with, say, the commercial crew program and we have partners. And so more is happening around us. And so there, what we've determined is that we really need to focus on being agile and demand-driven, right? And so one of the ways that we have addressed that is we've kind of adopted this uh, idea that some of our workforce needs to be more project-based and so that we they don't come necessarily with the expectation of, of been being at NASA for their entire careers or perhaps better said, being in roles for long periods of time. So that gives us a little bit more flexibility to change the size and the mix of the workforce as things, as things unfold because, uh, you know, we can't necessarily predict exactly what will happen or in on what time scale it will happen. But we know change is, is upon us. And so we need a little bit more flexibility than we've had before. So I would say that that is an, a, a key difference to how we've been thinking about the, the how much flexibility we need in the civil service, particularly. Obviously, we have, we also have 
contracts and support service contractors. And that's another way in which we can mold and shape, you know, the specific technical needs that we have closer to when we know that we need them. So that's another feature of how it is that we address change and and the reshaping of the workforce at any moment in time. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that overview. And I think you know, it's interesting. I would imagine, uh, and I'll ask because I, I want to know for sure, but I'd imagine for a lot of employees, like NASA is like the pinnacle of their career, right? If they can get into NASA, that's a job that they will hold on to for as long as they can. And there's great sides of that. And there's there's challenges to that as well. And I'm curious, like in, you know, your contemporaries, and we're in a bit of a different economy today than, you know, we were six or eight months ago. But, you know, going back to that period of time, when all we talked about was the great resignation, you know, did you find yourself insulated from that? Like, what was your uh, attrition like in that environment where, you know, your, your peers were, were really kind of, you know, pulling their hair out, trying to hold on to talent and draw talent? So I would answer by saying that we were partially insulated from aspects of it. So let me, let me explain what I mean. We have typically had a low attrition rate of the agency, anywhere from hmm, 3 to 6%, often depending upon the state of the economy. Most of our attrition is, is retirements. So, so we can sort of, we can't fully predict it, but we, we, we can estimate reasonably what we, what we would expect to see, partly who's retirement eligible, how many do we have, what percentage, how long do people tend to stay, you know, et cetera. So you can do the, the math behind the scenes. So we typically have a low attrition rate. I actually think there is something known as too low attrition rate, but I, would, I did expect and did see some uptick in attrition, both in retirement and in resignations. But we're not talking about like a really high, it's more like we were at the six, six, six to 7% versus in the lower end of what we typically do. So what I would say in being insulated is that we didn't see, we have not yet seen losses that are outside of the boundaries of what we've experienced in the past. And so it's not a supranormal level. But where we weren't insulated, and here's what I think really matters about this, is that we weren't insulated from the impacts of, of all the debates around future of work and the balancing of, you know, your work life with your other responsibilities and the degree to which you feel connected to what you are doing and needing to have some flexibility in choices. So we were not insulated from that. And because of that, we took very seriously, you know, how do we address of all the new possibilities that future of work has brought to us through COVID, really. I mean, we, we probably advanced a good decade in terms of how do we work virtually and that allows us to work asynchronously and more at home than before and or at, at third locations that are not home or office just for that matter. But, but the point being, you know, we knew that we had to do that reasonably and we had to take into account how... The, 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 the employee's viewpoint in all of this, because I think we, we can continue to be an employer of choice if we do this well. And I think we are doing it well. We're not there. Nobody's really figured all of this out, honestly. Um, but, I, but I do think that we have demonstrated intent and we have taken a lot of efforts 
to both work with leadership, hear from employees, and then do the sense making on top of all that. Um, you know, I think this this is this is really critical, and I know that our employees care about this. And if we don't pay attention, I think they'll let us know. And in one way or another, whether that's I leave the agency or I just let you know, and we we need to listen. And so that's why I think we're not fully insulated, nor should we be, from from what that was all about. As an HR practitioner navigating the new world of work, your ability to learn, connect with resources, and build your global peer community is essential to your success. That's why I launched the Amplify Academy. The Amplify Academy was built from the ground up to help HR practitioners and people leaders efficiently and effectively connect with the diverse learning needs and resources for today and tomorrow. There are three components to the Academy. The Learning Lab is an AI learning platform that includes a range of courses, resources, templates, content, and more to support the learning needs around modern HR practices for today and tomorrow. The Amplify Academy Slack community is designed to help you build your global network equity and peer set with practitioners around the world who share your vision for progressive HR practices. And the Amplify Academy cohorts are four-week immersive peer learning programs designed to help people leaders build the skills and network they need to succeed as an HR leader in today's environment. Cohort students also learn from world-class people leaders from Katie Burke, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, Brian Power, AJ Thomas, and so many more. Want to supercharge your people team? Be sure to check out the Academy for Teams product, which is designed to give you and your people teams access to over 400 resources, the full community, and more across the Amplify Academy. Learn more at amplifytalent.com slash academy. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate you raising that point. And I think it's also probably interesting. I mean, a lot of your employees, I imagine, have friends and families, some working in government roles, some working in the private sector. And so part of, you know, I think what fuels the conversations around, hey, why don't we have this, is when they talk to their peers and friends who do have that in their company. Maybe it's a different industry, different circumstances. That rarely matters. I think it's just, but they get to do this and I should get to do this. And, and it's it's interesting. I think that this, uh, this kind of um, push and pull sounds adversarial and I don't mean it to be, but this kind of negotiation, I would say, is a better way to frame it, with employees uh, who, you know, coming out of the pandemic, they, they do have different um, drivers, personally, professionally, they do have different things that they want from the workplace. And so, you know, finding that, um, hearing them, and then finding that middle ground with them, um, I think is an art that will continue to, you know, navigate into next year. I, I completely agree with you. And as I say, I don't think anyone's really figured this out, but we know better answers versus worse answers to that are responses to these employees standing up and saying, you know, it's not all about a paycheck and following the rules, you know. I also think that organizations stand to benefit a great deal from making this work. Because if you actually enable your employees to feel like, you know, they have some flexibility and they can find ways to be productive that don't just follow the standard mechanisms, I think 
we'll see that engagement and that productivity. And that's a benefit to them and to the organization. So, so we really must. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're trying and I think we've made some good strides and we're, we're going to figure out where we go, where we, we declared most of 2022 to be kind of an experimental phase in this. And so that we didn't declare anything with, say, office spaces and utilization and things that are sort of attendant to where and when people work questions. Um, so, so we're still um, putting quite a bit of, of resource and effort to, to trying to come out into 2023 with, with some really thoughtful approaches to all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think a lot of your contemporaries are, are also taking that approach of um, kind of iterating in shorter term intervals. So, you know, you're not trying to make a definitive situation for a reality that we're not in yet, right? And you have, because it's really hard. I think companies that have struggled are the ones that have said, hey, it's definitely this. And then, well, it's going to be this. I mean, even going back to last year with, you know, return to workplace and then Delta, no. And then return to workplace and Omicron, no. And it was just, you know, just this constant shifting. And that, I think, has just caused a lot of frustration for employees because, you know, again, some of them moved. Many of them have different, you know, life circumstances in terms of childcare and things like that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think when you're doing, you know, approaching it in in those shorter cycles, I think, um, gives you just more flexibility without, you know, setting an expectation with employees that you can't hold because maybe you are going to change something you've already committed to. Perfectly um, said. Yeah. What was your, you know, you, you work in such a unique environment and atmosphere because, um, again, the mission driven element of expanding, you know, mankind's horizons, I think will resonate with anybody who's remotely curious about the universe that we live in. Um, But you're also working in very high stakes missions and environments. And I'm curious, you know, what was your your hardest day at NASA? My personally, my hardest day at NASA was probably um, when the pandemic was clearly a pandemic. And because what it did was it pressed on that very most important thing to us, which is employee safety and wellness. For lots of obvious reasons, we take employee safety incredibly seriously at NASA. And um, it's one of our core values. And we must, we absolutely must put that at the top of the list. And so one of the things that we did with, with the help of the entire leadership team, up to and including the administrator, by the way, was to say, workforce is first. You go home, and even if it has an impact on mission, I don't care, safety is first. And so, but it took us a little while. I mean, it, I think everybody in the entire world was caught off guard by the pandemic. And so the reason it was such a tough day was there's this sense of, I don't have anything to re- that, that's a reference model for this. I've not been through a pandemic. I don't know how to, you know, to organize all of this. Luckily, the, everybody else was saying the same thing. And it was one of those moments where the, the leadership team kind of coalesced really super quickly. So I wanted to help figure it out, but I wasn't alone. I mean, that was, that was the good that's the coda to that day where you're like, oh my gosh, 
this is real and I don't know what I, what's next. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I think it was hard. It was one of those things where it was a really hard day, but it learned, it, it, it led to some really good things and good demonstrations of who we are as, as a, as an agency that I will forever remember. And which I think we, that we still demonstrate every day now, even though the pandemic is waning largely behind us. Like, I'm going to say that and then it won't be, but fingers crossed. <laughs> I, I, I catch myself sometimes saying, now that we're, you know, approaching the other side of the pandemic, I don't really know how to right. talk about it without feeling like I'm like out of my league. So I'm optimistically hopeful about the diminished impact of the pandemic on our lives and society. I guess maybe that would be <laughs> Uh, I see. I just came up with it on the fly. I guess, I guess, I guess that'll work. <laughs> what um, I want to get back to uh, a mission question, um, and that is the um, the upcoming uh, Artemis mission. Well, upcoming already begun, but more specifically, Artemis three. Which uh, you know, for those of you that aren't familiar with the Artemis mission, it is uh, it is uh, our getting back to the moon um, with kind of laying the foundation for eventually getting to Mars. And one of the aspects of uh, Artemis three that you've um, already kind of come forward with is that there will be uh, a person of color and a woman uh, landing on the moon, um, both making history. And you know that the the represent the importance of the representation in that decision and the commitment to DEIA, uh, um, which I know is kind of how you frame it uh, within the agency, I would love to just learn a little bit more about kind of, you know, the how DEIA, maybe if you could just define that for the audience who may be new to the term, and then just talk a bit more about how that impacts decisions like that and, and, and kind of your strategy for the uh, agency. Absolutely. Um, so DEIA is the, a government-wide, federal government-wide, I should say, term for the, for diversity, which is otherwise known as DEI or DEIB or various other. The A at the end uh, references accessibility, and so that's that's its definition. Um, so what I would say is DEIA isn't just an action plan that has a beginning and a middle and an end. It is. It is a, a way, it's a, it's a value. Uh, in fact, we added inclusion, which is, of course, part of the EIA as one of our core values of the agency a few years ago. But one of the things that's really important for DEIA to really take hold and be present in front of our minds in almost everything that we do is having the agency really demonstrate it in very obvious and meaningful ways. And so I think that the declaration of having the first woman and the first person of color land on the moon was a way of saying, this is because the talent that we need to do all of these things is inclusive of, you know, people from all walks of life. It is a diverse mix and that this was a way of honoring it and, and respecting it, knowing that it would be a really wonderful thing that would have kind of a 
the spillover effect into a lot of other efforts that we have going on, um, anything from equity and procurement to diversity in hiring to all these other things. So what I'd say is DEIA is never done and is it's in everything, especially in human capital, it's in everything, but it's also in the lives of our managers and supervisors and interactions among workforce and in teams. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you have to really know what it is and always be aware and that this sort of helps. You know, it, it is a way to say how very important this is to the nation and to this administration who, you know, have really invited all of us to do strategic plans for DEIA to really think about ways the DEIA that is beyond the traditional in our government organizations. So thinking more broadly out into the, the country and where are there inequities in underserved populations in, in the services that government provides as an example of, of the much broader definition. So this fits really well into that, um, into that effort to really make it broader than it has ever been before and to give it that kind of uh, attention. Yeah, well, I appreciate the the window into um, the role of DEIA within the agency, but then also kind of specifically towards the mission, um, how that uh, came from. So I know that uh, you know all of us will be certainly uh, cheering that mission on, and uh, and and all future missions. That this the work that continues to come out of NASA is uh, mind expanding and and just so exciting. Again, especially um, space nerd growing up in South Florida, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. I've been following the program for a very long time. So <laughs> yes. it's, uh, this is uh, this is exciting moments for humanity. Um, last question I have for you before we move to the lightning round. Uh, you know, I knew having on a podcast, a lot of people from my network and listeners from the podcast uh, would would have a lot of questions for you, and they did. There are a lot of tremendous questions. But I did pick one that I wanted to cover uh, with you. And this one comes from uh, Alina Merrick. And she asked, uh, in an organization where communication is one of the most critical components of success, how do you utilize it to foster a culture that sparks human connections? So I guess I would say um, the two things that I think of about communications is that they are, um, they are intentional and they are personalized. And I think that kind of drives a lot of our efforts in communications at NASA. So when I say intentional, you know, people know how to do comms. You have communication specialists and they know how to do layered communications and target an audience and all that sort of thing. I think what matters, though, is that you're caring to communicate. That you're actually, and I'm, I, when I say that, it's at all levels. So... The administrator communicates and the associate administrator and your your project lead and your mission director and your home team and your function and your do you see what I'm saying? It's like this this idea that people know that there's an importance in communicating so that we can make good decisions and so that people understand what they need to do and what flexibilities they have. But the personalized is I think more what she was getting at in the question. Um, and I think, so we're a very people-oriented agency. We're very meeting-oriented. We've relied very heavily on sort of being in these field centers, literally being with each other and interacting in formal and informal ways. And obviously, we're having to shift how we do that now that we are more virtual. We will continue to be a, more of a mix of 
on-site and virtual going forward. So that we really put a premium on interpersonal connections, employee to employee. Uh, and, I, and, and I actually think that the supervisors and the work units are kind of a key. So I talk a lot about this about the role of the supervisor and how they have to almost have superpowers. They do have superpowers. <laughs> supervisors have superpowers. Um, because I think they are where the work and the workforce come together. And they are in that unique position to ensure that not only are they contextualizing things, but they're also listening. And so over the last few years, there's been a lot of effort, intentionality, to really reach out one-on-one to small groups, across and of course the tools that we have now that we really got used to using rather rapidly because of the pandemic are now enabling us to have that kind of interaction across the enterprise so that you you know we have people who work project teams who are not geographically in in the same geography they're at different field centers right so this is just another way for them to really make connections moment to moment day to day um and so again i think it's that this idea that we are always focused on what did the the employees need to know, and and the voice of the workforce too. I mean, we we've actually put quite a bit of effort into surveys and mechanisms so that we understand what is going on, and so that's an important feature of the whole area of communication um, to ensure that we're not bothering them with stuff that they don't really need to know, but we're really being intentional about what we share so they feel like. They're up to date. They know. They know what's what, <laughs> and so some of that's what's that what what makes an organization tick. Yeah, I mean, and you you know you you break it down as if it's somewhat easy, but I know it's not, right? I think finding the right um, cadence of communication, style of communication, frequency of communication, platforms and methods for communicating. I mean, there's so many variables to this. Like, you know, the the the, the idea of discussing internal communication sounds simple. But there's so much complexity to it, and particularly in your environment where you're used to working in field centers and now you've got distributed employees, right. you have to lean more on asynchronous. Um, it's just it's, it's interesting to kind of hear how you think through navigating that. Yeah. So, um, Jane, I could, I, there, there's so many more questions I would love to get into with you, but I, I know that we have a, 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 a you know, timestamp podcast here, uh, and I do want to get into the lightning round just to help the audience get to know you a little bit more before we wrap up. So... We always start with music. Uh, who are your top three artists? Who, who are you playing on repeat these days? Well, um, I'm a classical musician, so minor classical choices. I'd say Yo-Yo Ma's at the top, cellist. And then, of course, Arthur Rubinstein, whose noc- Chopin Nocturnes are the best ever, and I listen to them every day. <laughs> and Yuja Wang, who's another pianist, classical pianist. So those are the, some examples. Okay. Um, we're going to shift to TV or the screen. Now, now, now you're streaming. What was your latest uh, binge on TV? Well, it isn't actually new, but I'm still in love with it. That's the Great British Baking Show. Okay. <laughs> Wait, have you watched For All Mankind yet? I haven't. You yeah. have? Okay, so, well, so Jane and I uh, had an opportunity to meet in person in Dublin 
earlier this year. And uh, for all mankind, it's streaming on Apple Plus. I think it's on season three now. Okay. Again, they're they're getting a little more this season focused on, uh, you know, the Mars race and they landed on Mars. And I'm not going to give away anything other than that. But it's fascinating. And, uh, and, and yeah, well, at, at some point when you have some space, it, it's it's worth your time. It's like an alternate look at the space race, which, uh, interesting. you know, yes. I, I think could be interesting. Um, and now, so I know you've worked in the field of HR throughout your career. We're going to have a career change. You can't do HR anymore. Uh, what would you be doing? Chances are good. I'll be thinking about not working full time, but instead teaching and writing and of course my music. Um, so that's kind of where I'm headed. I actually really want to give back as well. So I came to government service later in my career. Um, but what I realized was, you know, it matters. And I feel I want people to understand that it matters and that government service, service of any kind really, um, is is a way to bring great joy into your life, uh, even if you don't make as much money at it as you might doing something else, or um, there are other reasons why you wouldn't think of it as your first choice. But if, in terms of being meaningful, if you find meaning in work, that kind of federal service or service of any kind to organizations that are really oriented towards making the world a better place is great. So I might find some ways to, to give back, you know, I had a nice career in government towards the end and I, and I want to, want to appreciate it and give back. So. Yeah. I mean, hearing you describe that, I actually think that is in your future at some point, <laughs> at some point, I think that that is, uh, that is available to be to you. And I, it would not surprise me at all to see you doing that, uh, you know, at some point down the road. So, yeah. um, well, Jane, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your work at NASA and, uh, giving us all a window into the work that you do at the agency. So thank you so much. Thank you, Lars. It's been a great pleasure being with you and uh, talking through all these things with you. It's just been really fun. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.